All right, Genesis chapter 17, if you've got a Bible. And uh, we're in a series called The Journey of Faith. And uh, we're looking mostly here, pretty much, at the life of Abraham. Uh, we're in Genesis 12 through 22, uh, looking at different stories uh, that are in that and kind of moving around. And sometimes we're pulling pieces from different places just to kind of get the, the, the idea of the stories and how these pieces connect. And Abraham is a guy who, when you look at him in the New Testament and see how they reflected on him, the thing that they point out again, the New Testament writers, over and over about Abraham is his faith. Um, he's Father Abraham. We call him kind of the father of faith. And so he's that first guy you look at in the Bible, and the Bible says he believed God. And the Bible begins to highlight his faith, and we begin to see God do wonderful, miraculous things through the life of Abraham. Not because Abraham was a great guy, but because God in his grace pulled Abraham out of the middle of nowhere out of an idolatrous family, by his grace saved him and set him his life on a different course. Abraham, we're seeing throughout these stories, is not a perfect man. He fails regularly. Um, but he's going in a different direction by God's grace, and he is walking by faith, not walking in unbelief, and God is going to use him um, to to bring about a people who would we know would ultimately become the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. So you can draw a direct line from the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to Abraham. And that means you can draw a direct line from you all the way to Abraham, or rather from Abraham to you. As we said a few weeks ago, when Abraham looked up at the stars and God said, count the stars. If you can count the stars, you can count your descendants. When Abraham was looking at the stars, he was counting you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are the fruit of the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude. And so today we're going to talk about the idea of, is there anything too hard for God? And uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17, as I mentioned. We're going to pick up in verse 15. But, you know, throughout our faith journey, Christians must continually and constantly ask ourselves, how big is our God? How big is our view of God? See, the bigger your God, the more your faith will grow. If you want to grow your faith, we need to grow our knowledge of God through His Word. The more we understand God, the more we get who God is, the more we fall in love with God, the more our faith grows as we understand about God. Because at the end of the day, faith is not awesome and great because of its faith. It's the object of your faith that makes faith matter. You can have the greatest faith, the strongest faith, the most consistent faith, the most persistent faith in a rock, and that's not going to do you any good in Judgment Day or in life. But if you just have the faith of a mustard seed in the right object, Jesus says you can move mountains. And so it's not the really the amount of your faith that the that the Bible extols most of the time. It is the object of your faith. But what we're gonna what I want you to understand is that when we know more about the object of our faith, about the God of the Bible, when we understand Him and we understand His Word and we allow Him to grow us and stretch us, our faith will grow because we begin to trust more and more and believe more and more because we understand more and more about who God is. Or at least it should. You know, a big part of faith is believing God for fill-in-the-blank. Right? And so, I believe... God for my salvation, right? I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe that through the Lord Jesus Christ I'm saved and I believe that one day I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven, right? So I'm believing God for that through faith in Christ. But another part of faith is trusting God with 
Okay? And my trusting God with is a reflection of my believing God for. And so if I can believe God for my salvation, for instance, I should be able to trust God with my daily life. Both are components of faith. So people that believe should also be people that trust and that rely and that have confidence in God. And we're going to see this in the life of Abraham today, that he was someone who believed God for, he was someone who trusted God with, but we constantly are challenged in these areas, and the question we come to, whether we realize it or not, many times is, well, how big is our God? Is there anything too big for God, too hard for God, too difficult for God, too marvelous for God? Is there anything God can't do? What kind of God do I have faith in? And if we are believing the God of the Bible, then, well, that should change everything when we understand how the Bible presents Him. Because the Bible teaches we can believe God for all He says, and we can trust God with all we have. So today's question that we're pondering is, is there anything too wonderful, hard, or difficult for God? And we're going to get to that question in the text here in just a little bit. But the answer to that question has radical ramifications for what you believe about God and believe God for and what you trust God with. The bigger your God, the more your faith can grow. And it's not that we need God to get bigger. We need to understand how big God really is. So when we left off last week in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarah, had taken things into their own hands. God has made Abram a promise that he would father a multitude. He has promised him land. He has promised him to be the father of many nations. He's made these promises to Abram. But at this point, Abram owns no land. Abram has no children when we picked up in Genesis 16 last week. And Sarah gets frustrated. They're later in life, not really at an age where you start planning your family. And she says, well, maybe, and she comes up with this idea that she would give Hagar, her servant, to her husband, and that she could, as a wife, as like a second wife, or as a concubine, is a term you see a lot in the Old Testament, and that she could bear children on her behalf. And this was a common practice in their culture, but not one that God was supportive of. And they reap major consequences because of it, and it brings major problems into their life for generations. For generations, we saw last week. But what is really happening is is they're trying to help God fulfill God's promise. And what we talked about last week is God doesn't need your help or my help in filling His promises. Right? God doesn't need us to help Him. He needs us to obey Him. He needs us to trust Him. He needs us to wait on Him. And we talked about this idea of waiting and being patient and understanding that in our waiting that God hears us and that God sees us. Now, in chapter 17, after Abram's miserable failure, God shows up and meets with Abram, but it's 13 years later. And so for 13 years, we don't know if Abram had those moments with God like we've seen him have in chapter 12, for instance, in chapter 15, where God appears and begins to speak to him and all this. And so for 13 years, maybe he thinks that they've fixed the issue, and maybe he thinks that Ishmael, the son of him and Hagar, is going to be the son of the promise. Maybe he thinks this is who God's going to build this great nation through. Maybe he thinks that because for 13 years, nothing. But in chapter 17, after his failure, God visits Abram and he changes his name to Abraham. He changed, he's going to change Sarai's name to Sarah. 
He gives him a sign of the uh, uh, sign of the covenant that he's made with him, which is circumcision, and promises him that Sarah will, or Sarah now, as her name's being changed, will give birth to his son. This is the first time in the story that we know that Sarah is actually going to be the mother of the child of promise. God had not told him how he was going to do it. He just told him he was going to do it. So we talked last week about how they begin to fill in the blanks for God and how we're not supposed to do that. And so now. God is filling in the blanks. And God is going, yeah, nice try over there with uh, Hagar and Ishmael, but that's not going to work. That's not my plan. And so God shows up and begins to speak to Abram again. And here is a key phrase that you need to understand. We're going to pick up in reading in verse 15, but you need to see verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And so that's how God introduces this whole section we get in chapter 17. is introduced with God appearing to him and saying, I am God Almighty. Or in the Hebrew, I am El Shaddai. That's name for God. It means I am the Almighty, All-Powerful God. In other words, I don't need, I'm the God that doesn't need your help. Following chapter 16 where they tried to help. Right? I am God Almighty. I am all-powerful God. I am the God who can do anything. And Abraham falls on his face before God. And this is how God opens the conversation. It is going to lead him, it's going to lead to God giving Abraham a promise that the fulfillment will place, and the fulfillment of that promise is going to place his El Shaddai power on full display. And at this point in the story, God had not revealed, as we said earlier, God had not revealed that Sarah would have the child. And now we're going to see God's plan begin to unfold. And from the promise of Isaac, which is what we're going to read about today, Abraham and Sarah are about to learn that nothing is too hard for God. So he can believe, be believed for big things, and he can be trusted with everything. So look, starting in verse 15, we're going to kind of read some different passages, stop and pause and talk about it, and then we'll wrap up at the end. So start by reading in chapter 17, verses 15 through 24. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in the house, in his house, or brought with it, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now let's stop there. Here's the deal. This is God's promise, right? God is he's, he's just revealing more about the promise. He's given him the next page. 
And in verse 15, both Sarah and Sarah, Sarah, you see God changed her name from Sarah to Sarah, they both mean princess. And notice the promise. Kings will come from her. Nations will come from her. God promises this. And the big key to this promise is there's going to be really a particular king that's going to come from her. The kings are going to come from her. There's one particular king that's going to come from her. And that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is exciting for Abraham, or it should be. Because now he knows for sure that Sarah has a part in the journey because God had not revealed that before. But but he's a 100. And she's 90. And it doesn't seem very practical. It doesn't seem very possible. It doesn't seem very likely that the child will be from the union of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. But it will be, in fact, the union of Abraham and Sarah. In other, you kind of look at it this way. You're right, Abraham. It's not going to be from the union of Abram and Sarai. But you better be sure it will be from the union of Abraham and Sarah. Because now God's involved in the situation and things are changing, right? And so God is about to bring this about. Because anything is possible when El Shaddai, when God Almighty gets involved. And now, how does one respond to the news at 100 that you and your 90-year-old wife are going to be expecting? He fell on his face and laughed. Or maybe you'd cry. <laughs> Maybe you would do both. I don't know, right? How would you react, right? I mean, we can we can scoff at Abraham and we can scoff at Sarah for their laughter in these passages. We're going to get to hers in here in just a moment. But I've never I, I, I talk with a lot of ninety year olds and eighty year olds and eighty five year olds, and we've had people that lived to be a hundred, hundred and one here, even in our in our church family. Let me just tell you, I've never had a conversation where they said, "You know what? I'm thinking of starting a family." <laughs> Not practical, right? And this doesn't make sense, right? And so he's he's amazed that God would give this promise to him. And based off their ages, it seems doubtful that it's possible. So it's this laugh kind of of amazement and doubt and confusion and just kind of like, whatever, man. Okay. And then he says, what about Ishmael? I mean, let Ishmael live before you. Now, he's concerned for Ishmael. He loves Ishmael. Ishmael at this point is a teenager and his son and his oldest whom he loves. And God promises, hey, I've heard you about Ishmael. He will be blessed and he will be fruitful and he will multiply. But he makes a very clear distinction. There will be a difference in Ishmael and Isaac. And the promise isn't coming through your design. It's coming through my design. And I'm not going to do this your and Sarah's way. I'm going to do this my way. And it's going to be Isaac. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. You know, they had this whole thing about the oldest child, the oldest child, the oldest child. But you see God all the way through many times kind of like going, eh, nah, second one. You see this again with Jacob and Esau. Verses 22-24, through 24, after Abraham receives this promise, he goes and he gets all the men in his home circumcised. Why? Well, God told him to. Why does the text reveal this to us that he went and immediately did this? Because it wants us to understand something. Abraham might have laughed, but he believed. You don't go get... If you think God's off his rocker on this, what you don't do at 100 years old is grab all the men in your in your, in your your home and go get them circumcised. I mean, if you're going to bail, this is the time to do it. Okay? And he doesn't bail. Right? No, he doesn't bail. And, and listen, the Bible puts this in here because it wants us to understand something. He was very serious about his obedience. And he was very serious about his faith that he believed this promise from God that at a hundred years old and his wife at 90, that they would have, they would conceive a child. 
And the name God gives the child is Isaac. And the name Isaac means he laughs. So think about it. God says, you're going to have a child. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And God says, and you'll name him, he laughs. <laughs> I will have the last laugh. You laugh, let's just name him that, right? And all through this passage, you see laughing, right? You see laughing. And you see God's going to have the last laugh. And then we see the promise to Sarah in verses chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. So look with me. And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! Three seeds of fine flour, knead it and, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, let's pause right there. So the Lord appears to Abraham in verse 1 there of chapter 18. And we see multiple accounts where God meets with Abraham. And here three men come to visit him. And Abraham refers to one of them as Lord. And when one of them speaks, it refers to him as Lord, all capitals in your English translation, which means that is the name Yahweh. And this shows that he recognizes one of them as a divine manifestation. Many believe this to be the pre-incarnate Christ. The Bible doesn't really explain that to us, but that's a possibility. And Abraham runs, which is unusual in this culture, showing how I'm... In, it, this shows us how important it is that these people are there because men and men of his age, you know, 100-year-old men, didn't go running around, right? Uh, even though hospitality was a big deal in their culture, it wasn't such a big deal that they were going to go running around to do this. But he's running around and they're being very hospitable and they're going out of their way to make these people comfortable because hospitality was a big deal in their culture. But bigger than that, because Abraham knows he is entertaining the Lord. In verses 9-15, through 15, these three men inquire of Sarah. And the Lord makes the same promise that He made before. And Sarah hears, overhears this time. And the text says they're old and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she's no longer able to have children. She's past that age. Physically, it is now an impossibility. Now remember, Abraham and Sarah had tried to make the promise happen with Hagar. But now... God is choosing to fulfill it in such a way that it's impossible for them to make it happen. He literally purposely waits till it's physically impossible for her to have children before He makes it possible for her to have children. Because see, at the end of the day, this was never about Abraham and Sarah. 
This was never about them having the little child when they wanted to have a little child. This was always a God's story. This was always about God. This was always for His glory. This was always for His purposes. This was always for His plan. And Sarah, when she hears, the Bible says she laughs. After I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? There's a hint of bitterness, it seems. Do you catch it? There's a little bit more than just awe and doubt, I think. I think there's a little bit kind of like, oh, now? Oh, now. So after all these years, now? Are you kidding me? Now? Right? Uh, it's almost kind of like, now we want one now, you know? She doesn't say that. I know I'm reading into it there, but you get the point. There's this kind of, there's this, it, it really? But remember, she's been waiting for years. We talked last week about waiting on the Lord and how it can strengthen your faith or it can weaken your faith. So you can grow better, as they say, or you can grow bitter. And I think there's some bitterness here. Why is she laughing? Her, her eyes are on her and Abraham's physical limitations. She's not thinking about the intervention of God at all. She's not thinking of God's miraculous power. She's not factoring for God at all. And if you factor for God, there's no factoring to do. The equation is blown up because God changes everything. But she's not she's not placing God in the equation. She's thinking, here's Abraham, here's me. I'm past childbearing years. Abraham's 100 years old. This is impossible. Ha ha ha, this is crazy. Are you insane? Because right? she's not even factoring in God at all. And maybe there are areas in your life this morning, right now, that you simply aren't even factoring for God. You see impossibilities, you see difficulties, you see challenges. And without the God factor, you know what? You wouldn't be here this morning. But for the miraculous, all-powerful God, you wouldn't be a Christian if you're a Christian today. The church would never make it. The church would have never been birthed. The church would have never survived. You wouldn't have the Bible that many of you are holding in your hands this morning. And the Gospel would never have advanced the way it has throughout the world for the last... 2,000 years. But when you factor for God, excuses and limitations and natural things seem quite silly and weak, right? So God asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? That word hard can also be translated wonderful. It literally means wonderful. It's the word used to describe the wonders God did at the Exodus to deliver Israel. He's saying, is anything too miraculous for me? Wonderful and difficult for me to do? Remember, chapter 17, verse 1, that introduced this whole series to us is, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. If God is who He says He is, then the answer to the question is obviously no. Nothing is too hard or wonderful for God. But the question strikes at the very heart of who God revealed Himself to be at the very beginning of the chapter. Do they believe, does Abraham believe, will Sarah believe that God is who He says He is? Let me ask you, what do you view as too hard or too wonderful for God? Because this has massive implications for how we view God's work in the lives of other people, in our lives, the life of the church, how you view a broken marriage or hurting, hurting people in impossible circumstances many times. You know, lots of things are too hard for you and me. Lots of things are way too wonderful and miraculous for you and for me. But if we believe the Bible, nothing is too hard or too wonderful for God. That brings hope to every situation. Even in this situation, to this 90-year-old barren woman. Now that doesn't mean that, hey, that the, the, the point is not that God goes around um, allowing 90 and 100-year-old people to have children. That's not the point at all. 
the point is this, when God says it, that does settle it. It, it, it's, it's sure it can be counted on because it's His promise and He fulfills His promises. Now, look over at chapter 21. We'll see the fulfillment of God's promise. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah. So He's back. Okay? He said He was coming back. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He laughs, right? Verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Bitterness is gone. Joy has overcome. And this is not about resentment. This is not the snarky pessimism that we see a few chapters ago. But this is awestruck wonder at what God has done. She had laughed in doubt. God names the son. He laughs. Sarah at his birth declares these words. And God can... God has a way of turning our tears to joy. And listen, God has a way of turning our snarky, pessimistic, doubtful laughs into laughter of joy. Because He's all-powerful. Verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? But yet, look, in other words, nobody would have guessed or planned this. This is not something they would dream up. But God did it. And the fulfillment of God's promise shows His power, His faithfulness, His goodness because He takes a sad and sort of snarky Sarah and makes her full of joy and gladness in chapter 21. God's power can do anything, including change people. The New Testament teaches us that Sarah actually had faith and believed. She, she didn't continue in the doubt that she laughed in. It's, it, I believe after the Lord rebuked her there, she grew in her faith and she began to trust Him because the New Testament tells us she believed God for that baby. God has the power not only to fill the barren womb, but to change the bitter and doubtful heart. And that's good news this morning for us. Now, flip over to chapter 22. At this point, some years have passed. Isaac has gotten older. The promise has been fulfilled. And then the test comes. Verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. At this point, Ishmael has been sent off. Isaac's the only one in the home. Isaac's the son of the promise. All of Abraham's hopes and dreams are right there in Isaac. And God gives him this command. So Abraham begins to get up the next morning and to obey God. Look down at verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. They've climbed up the mountain. They're on their way. He sees a way to make fire. He sees the wood. He says, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So they get up there. They get to the place. 
And Abraham is about to go through with this. Because God's told him to. And so he's literally got the knife in the air. He's about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And verse 11 happens. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he looks over and just like Abraham had said, God provided the lamb. He provides a ram over in the thicket. And he goes and he sacrifices that lamb and they worship that ram and they worship there together. And then down in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, now don't miss this, shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So several years later Abraham is tested. Isaac is the symbol of for Abraham of God's power. Do you get that? God says I'm El Shaddai and God says your wife will bear this child. You'll name him this. And then God does it. And then several years later, God asks him to put this son on the altar. This is the symbol of God's power, of God's goodness, and of God's promise. In Isaac, he sees the joy of his laughing wife. In Isaac, he sees a future nation. But now he will undergo his greatest test about what he believes about God and what he will trust God with. And he's seen that God is powerful. And so what does he do? He does what God says. He had believed God for his son, and now he will trust God with his son. And even though nothing is too hard for God, the question that's really being asked in chapter 22 is, is this going to be too hard for Abraham? The truth is, we're seeing in this text that Abraham still believes nothing is too hard for God. He still believes in an all-powerful God. And I'll point that out in just a second. And he believes that God is completely good. Now, what is the scariest thing? When I, when, I, when I was a kid, the thing I hated most about school was tests. Didn't like them. Didn't like them. Still don't like them. And it's, fortunately, I don't really have to take them anymore. But I, I didn't. I didn't like them in school when I was in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, in college, and I didn't like them in seminary. I, I didn't like tests. And there's, here's the thing about tests: there's nowhere to hide when there's a test. Now, in the classroom, and the, they're bantering about, and people are talking, the teachers asking questions. You can kind of slink back a little bit. You can stay quiet. You don't have to admit how little you know most of the time. But when the test paper is given and you're going to be graded, there's nowhere to hide. Right? You're going to be revealed. All that you are or not is going to be revealed. All that you know or don't know, all that you've studied or not studied, all of that's going to be laid bare on a piece of paper to a certain degree. And here the Lord's testing Abraham. And there's nowhere to hide. And the Lord will test us, by the way. And there's nowhere to hide. And testing exposes us. It it allows our faith or the lack thereof to be tested. It reveals it, but it can also strengthen it. And we learn a lot about Abraham and about God from this test. We learn God's good. We learn God's a provider. We learn God can be trusted. And we learn Abraham is willing to trust God with what was most precious to him. Notice all through the account, Abraham's worshiping God. He's obeying God. We didn't read all those passages, but all the way through, it's, it's a worshipful, obedient Abraham. 
And God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Make sure you understand that. God condemns child sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. He intended for Abraham to show himself obedient and trusting. God wasn't after Isaac's life. He was after Abraham's heart. This was, this was never about killing Isaac. This was absolutely about Abraham's surrender. And the ram in the thicket shows that God was going to provide. Abraham knew God's provision. He was trusting Him for His provision and God comes through. Now, when we look at this story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and in this kind of this grand narrative we see here in Genesis, here's three quick takeaways from it as we understand and we learn that nothing is too hard for God. First of all, the first takeaway is there is nothing too hard for God. There's nothing too hard or too wonderful for God. That was the question posed in chapter 17, and that's what it's proved out through the life of Isaac in the life of Abraham. The story of Isaac's conception, the story of his birth, the miracle at the, at the, at the mountain where God gives the ram shows us nothing is too hard for God. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12 says that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. That's Abraham. How'd you like that to be? How you remember? He's good as dead. Were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God waited to Abraham was as good as dead in terms of reproducing before he gave them these children. Why? Because like I said earlier, it was never about them. It was always about him. It was always what God was doing, about Him displaying His power, about Him showing them that He is El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful God. And as much as there is no situation in which God cannot provide, we, we learn that there's because God is all-powerful, in so, there's no situation that He cannot provide. That's why when you get to chapter 22, you get a new name for God. You get the new name for God revealed. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the God who sees our need and meets our need. And listen, if He's really El Shaddai, then he's really capable of being Jehovah Jireh, right? If he's all-powerful, then he can provide anything and everything that's needed. And we see this playing out. You know, when I was a kid, I was never very good at video games. I loved them. I played them way too much. And I stuck at them. And I remember, go back here, The Legend of Zelda, couldn't ever beat that game. I remember Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, never beat Mike Tyson. I remember Super Mario Brothers, like the easiest game ever created, never beat Super Mario Brothers. Right? I was nerdy enough to play them, but not nerdy enough to win. And so, um, I just wasn't good enough, right? And so there was always a level I couldn't get past when I played these games, or there was always a character that I couldn't defeat when I played these games. And my, I was very limited in that. And all through life, not just in stupid little video games and things like that, but in whether it's sports or whether it's academics or whether it's just in life in general, we are reminded all the time of the limits to our power. And if we are not careful, we will measure God and will measure situations and circumstances by those same limits. Because we don't factor for God. Our power and lack thereof is on full display in life. We know that we have limits. But we need to know that the good news about God is that there's nothing beyond His ability. There are things that He can't do such as deny His own character. He can't lie. That's not a testament. That's a testament to who God is though. Not a testament to His lack of ability. 
We need a robust, healthy theology of a big God that can do anything and can do whatever He wants to and doesn't need our permission and we don't have to like it. It will radically change the way you read the Bible, the way you understand the Bible, and how you accept the Bible, and how you look at life. So the first thing we need to take away from this is there is nothing too wonderful, too hard, too difficult for God. But secondly, because of who God is, you can believe Him for all that He says, and you can trust Him with all that you have. God shows that He's all-powerful throughout this story. God shows Himself to be good throughout this story. That's the big question, right? How can God be all-powerful and how can God be good? We've got a sermon on that, by the way, online. You can go look at it. But how can God be all-powerful and how can God be all-good? If He's, if he's, if he's all-powerful, He can't be all-good because there wouldn't be so much bad in the world. And if, he, if He's, if he's all-good, He must not be all-powerful and He would prevent all the bad. And all the, the Bible teaches us, though, that God is, in fact, all-powerful and all-good. And He's all-powerful enough to know and understand some things that you don't know and understand. And He's good enough to show Himself good in any and every situation, even when we don't understand. Even if, even if sometimes we don't see the things that are coming up into the rainbow for a way long way down the road. The God of the Bible is an all-powerful and a good God, and His provision is perfect. And you need to understand this morning that your faith and my faith is only as good as the object that we place it in. If God is all-powerful, if nothing's too hard for Him, then what will we believe or not believe about His Word and in His Word today? Be careful that you don't let the difficult days and the waiting times that we talked about last week make you bitter and snarky towards the power of God. Don't let seasons of waiting and hurting and discouragement make you lose the wonderment that you're supposed to have for God. If you're Marriage is a wreck. You need to ask yourself this morning, is, is it too hard for God? It might be too hard for you. If your life is in shambles this morning, it might be too hard for you, but is it too hard for God? And we need to look at our life and we need to evaluate, are there areas where we've become pessimistic, snarky, rolling our eyes at things? And we get this way in church. We get this way in relationships. We get this way about other people. We get this way about situations that we're struggling with. And it's a sign that our eyes are no longer on God's power, but are on our limitations. Pessimistic, rolling my eyes, negative about every situation, always glass half full. I'm not talking about power and positive thinking baloney. I'm talking about snarky, pessimistic, always ragging down on something, always seeing the worst side of everything. That's never going to happen. Well, let me tell you, that ain't happened in 20 years. Let me tell you, that's not a faith. That is not a faith. That is a trust in you and your circumstances, and your situation, and the limitations on man, and it is not faith in an all-powerful, all-providing God. And we constantly have to battle this. If God is who He says He is, then you can believe Him for all He says. And here's the thing. God will... God doesn't... Everything's not a promise from God. God will always fulfill His promises. And God doesn't promise everything. But sometimes God does and can do things that He hasn't even promised. So we have to believe God for who He is. And we have to be willing to trust Him with all that we have. Abraham's faith led him to a radical trust in God. And when you trust God with what is most precious to you, then it shows how precious God is to you. Abraham learned that nothing was too hard for God. And we see in Hebrews 11, 17-19, that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he received the promises, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. 
Of whom it was said, though Isaac shall your, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And listen to what it says in verse 19. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because he was as good as dead on that altar. Because Abraham was going through with it. But he believed, this is what Abraham believed. He believed that if God has me kill him, God has promised me that this promise was coming through him. So if God's going to kill him, I guess what? I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. I wonder where he got that kind of faith. Because back in chapter 17, verse 1, God says, I am God Almighty. And for the last several years, God proved it. In the conception and in the birth of Isaac and all through Abraham's life. And so when he got to that moment, he knew who God was. And he had the faith to walk with God in that difficult moment. When you know God is all-powerful and you know God is good, and you know He's good, what would you not trust Him with? Why wouldn't you trust Him with everything? Let me ask you this morning, what are areas that you are withholding from God today? Where are we not trusting God today? In our marriage, in our parenting, with our checking accounts, with our relationships, with difficult situations maybe that we're navigating. Life is full of tests. These are opportunities to show that you believe God is who He says He is. Every act of obedience says, I believe God is who He says He is. And every act of disobedience says, I'm not so sure. You know, I've learned with small children that they are very trusting. Right? If they're hurting or they're crying, they're quick to run, to want help. They're just very trusting. But as we grow up, unfortunately, they kind of grow out of that, right? I know I'm probably not always going to be the first phone call or whatever. And I know there's going to be times that they're going to struggle with whether they even want to tell me about certain things. But I don't want that to happen, but that's to some degree human nature. We we go a little untrusting, we go a little independent, and we grow less and less dependent, or try to, we definitely grow less and less dependent on on our parents, and that's just the natural order of things. But see, Christian growth is supposed to be the opposite. In the natural world, as we grow up, we grow more and more independent. But in the Christian life, you're supposed to grow more and more dependent. Dependent. And we're not supposed to outgrow bringing things to God and outgrow relying and trusting in God. The more we grow in our faith, the more we should trust Him. So if you've been a Christian for a really long time, and there are areas where you're just outright not trusting God, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's a spiritual maturity issue. Nothing is too hard for God, so there's nothing you shouldn't be trusting Him with today. Now, here's the last takeaway. Number three, God's power and God's goodness are most clearly seen in God's one and only Son. Isaac's birth points us to a greater miraculous birth. Oh man, if you're, if you're just reading the Bible and you open it up in Genesis 1, you're like, man, this is good. But if you get to Genesis chapter 17, 18, and all these chapters about Isaac, and you're like, wow, God made it so that this 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman can have a baby. God's awesome. Well, let me just say, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because a couple, later on, generations later, there's going to be a little virgin teenage girl. And God's going to place a baby in her womb. And it's going to be the most miraculous, wonderful, nothing is too hard, nothing is too wonderful for God moment up to that point that has ever happened. Isaac's conception and birth was a miracle, but the greater miracle 
was the one who would come through down the line from Isaac, down the line from Abraham and Sarah. The the one, the the one descendant that would be born, the one offspring singular that we saw at the end of chapter 22 that would be born, who would be conceived of the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin. And this birth points us ahead to that greater miracle. And Isaac's being offered up on the mountain points us ahead to Jesus. Right? He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Does that sound familiar when you get to the New Testament? It says, God so loved the Word, He gave His only begotten Son. It's supposed to sound familiar. Because the great irony, the great twist in this story is God says, no, Abraham, you don't have to give your son because there's good news. I'm going to give mine. And that ram in the thicket that provides us a substitute for Isaac is a foretelling of the Gospel that one day God would send Jesus in, in your place. And He would die on the cross that you and I should die on. And He would pay the sin debt that you and I owe. It points us ahead to Jesus. This whole story of Abraham and Isaac points us ahead to Jesus. Because Abraham and Isaac's stories are a part of a bigger story. The most amazing thing in Scripture is not that Abraham surrendered and was willing to obey God and believe like he did and was willing to offer Isaac on the altar. But that God, the most amazing thing in Scripture is that God did not spare His Son and was willing to offer His Son who was without sin and was willing to offer Him for those who had much sin and was willing to offer them in His place. And then three days later, oh, nothing is too hard for God. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And all this, these stories point to that story. Is there anything too hard for God? No. Because He's all-powerful and He's good. Is God good? Yeah, look at the cross. God's good. Jesus didn't. Jesus hung there. You didn't die there. Jesus hung on that cross. God is good. Is God all powerful? Yeah. Look at the empty tomb. The gospel shows us that God is, in fact, who He says He is. How can we not trust God with everything precious to us when we realize that He gave for us what was most precious to Him? So maybe today. For the first time, you need to believe. For the first time, maybe you need to express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you, I plead with you to do so. That God has given His Son for you. And if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Him as Lord and Savior, today you can be saved. That's not too hard for God. And maybe today, as a believer in your faith journey, maybe sometimes we forget that nothing is, in fact, too hard for God. That He's all-powerful and that He's good. Maybe today we need to once again recommit ourselves to believing everything God says and trusting Him with everything we have. Is there something big today that you need to take to God in faith? Something big. That you just think, it's, just, it's too big for you. It's too hard for you. It's too difficult for you. It's not too difficult for God. Is there something today maybe that you're withholding from God today? That you've been afraid to trust God with? Is there an area in your life, a situation, circumstance where you trust God in that area today. There's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing too difficult. There's nothing too wonderful. So you should believe Him for all He says and trust Him with all you have.